Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So last week we talked about um, presidential personalities and sort of how the energy that they bring to the office and the excitement that they bring to the office. And now we're going to kind of, I think, delve into, we had, we'd mentioned that we were going to talk about now how they go outward from the office, like the skill set that they, that they use to do the job, right? Yeah. Um, you know what, you know, uh, HR managers or psychologists would refer to as leadership skills and variables, right? Okay. Yeah. If they wanted to put you to sleep, yes. That's how they'd refer to that. <laughs> and hopefully. Um, I'm sorry. Sorry. That was not nice to all our HR friends out there who listen to this. That, those, those, that is actually a good phrase to think about. Okay. But, and, and hopefully our conversation won't put our listeners to sleep. <laughs> That's how. And if you are driving and we start to put you to sleep, turn us off um, oh, or pull, or pull over. over pull over okay <laughs> right we we don't want to be responsible for injuries um to any of you yes uh, but, neither, uh, neither, I, neither neither or i have no practice insurance that's um, right. <laughs> so if you or uh, your uh, your estate wants to sue us, okay? please don't. <laughs> please don't. <laughs> but we also we want to be mindful of the fact that um, we are recording this on the Friday before the election, and so part of what we're talking about here, and you will have voted by the time this comes out. So it's not so much about um, this election and making a choice about this election the way uh, our a couple of episodes in the last two episodes were about this is more about the doing of the job yeah and what to watch for as whoever wins the election does the job how how to think about them as a um as a leader in action yes so uh and i know that there's a there's a guy right that wrote a Oh yeah, uh, 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 Greenstein. Um, he wrote a book, "The Presidential Difference: Leadership Style from FDR to George W. Bush." Yeah. It's okay, a, so that's Bush forty-three. So we yeah. won't hear about Obama or Trump. Trump. Yeah. So if you're looking about for those two, you just have to fill in your own internal blanks, or we might have snarky asides. But. <laughs> Us? But we're talking about the snarky us snarky. No, perish the thought. Get out. I <laughs> know uh, that's not even. No, I'm not even thinking about it. Okay, so let's start with um, organizing the government, right? Because that's kind of the major thing that you want a president to be able to do first: is organize the government, or organize himself, or organize something. Well, but but. Listeners, what Nia is talking about um, is one of the, and my students always roll their eyes when I use this expression, it's one of the less sexy parts of government, okay? Um, it's, it's not a terribly exciting thing, but when we elect a president, we are electing a person um, who has the constitutional authority 
to take care to faithfully execute the law. They run the bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy is the like the largest corporation that you could ever imagine, right? It's that large. Yeah, when there was a at one point in I don't remember it was the seventies or the eighties when Lee Iacocca was approached about running for president. Yes, and w the first thing he said was that he wouldn't take the job because it was a huge pay cut for him, which I thought was hilarious. Um, but also he he was like he he brought up that whole or idea of organizing Ford, and at the time Ford was an enormous. Enormous. Yes corporation I and mean, they had operations all over the world and they had a huge number of plants and all that and he said i'm not sure i have enough experience yes and yes. that's amazing when you think about if the person running well in a modern day equivalent what google or apple or amazon oh, right jeff yep. bezos yeah. right if the, somebody like that may not be sure that they have the capacity to organize the government, it's a big job. It's a huge job. It, and that's why presidential scholars, political scientists generally uh, frequently lament, Nia, how campaigning to be president requires certain skill sets. But those are not the skill sets necessarily one then uses to govern. And one of the biggest ones is, okay, organizational capacity. You have to be able to go ahead and develop and grow the organizational capacity of the federal government. It is that huge. You're talking about millions of people, okay, who go to work every day for the federal government, and they're supposed to take their cues Okay, their marching orders broadly conceived from the president of the United States. So, you know, there's often this disconnect, right? Okay, because, you know, think about how presidential candidates, and, and, and me and I were talking before we started recording, uh, we're kind of sort of over the campaign, right? Like many Americans. Okay. You know, oh, I'm so ready for Tuesday. Yeah, right. Okay. I, 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 either like I just want it done. Whatever oh, we're yeah. going to do, I just want it done. Okay, it, but but one of the things that 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 um, is 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 problematic for people um, is the fact that you know we're done we're done with this campaign, and it's a it's a long campaign uh, uh, presidential elections in the United States are far longer than, you know, prime minister, if you will, um, selections and other, you know, democracies, et cetera, blah, 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 right? But organizational capacity, okay? Has, does the person have the skills to organize the executive branch of government? And what, you know, Greenstein basically went ahead and uh, focused on is a president's ability to, put together a team, okay, um, and, and have that team then run the government on a daily basis. I mean, because let's face it. Oh, like the first question everybody asks is who's going to be their secretary of state? Who's going to be their chief of, uh, the chief of staff? Who's yes. going to be their, right, those people who actually, because your chief of staff organizes the West, 
the West Wing. Wing, that's right. Not the president. The president doesn't wander through the West Wing except on television, and tell people what to do individually. Like they don't have time for that. There's no. there's a, a chief of staff. Yeah. So what we're talking about here is, you know, whoever is elected president um, this year, um, whether it's you know Trump is reelected or Biden wins the election. You know, listeners, you should pay close attention to uh, those newspaper accounts, okay, those press accounts, those media accounts that talk about, um, you know, who's going to be the chief of staff, who's going to be secretary of state, who's going to be running the Justice Department, right? Um, who's going to be the secretary of defense? Um, um, because what you're talking about here is, um, does the president have the ability to organize a team who will then run the government. And that's key, right? Because as Nia points out, unlike TV shows, <laughs> presidents on a daily basis are not roaming the halls of various federal government agencies and checking on what the bureaucrats are doing in those agencies. And any president who tries is unsuccessful. Oh, is hugely unsuccessful. And you could make a really good argument that no president should try. Right. Because we want the president, okay, to handle the big picture, okay, uh, what Greenstein refers to as the vision, you know, the vision skill, which we can get to in just a few moments. Um, or as Bush 41 said, that vision thing. Right? <laughs> okay. 41? Uh, yeah, it was 41. Okay, right after Reagan, okay, the press was frequently asking him, oh, for um, his you know, vision. yeah, you know, what's your vision, you know, uh, your predecessor, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan was really good at vision. And, you know, and, and, and finally, after getting so many questions, Bush 41 was just like, oh, so you're asking me about that vision thing, right? You know, and, and that's a, that kind of sort of you know, Texas by Connecticut drawl of his, right? Oh, that's right. T-H-A-N-G. Yeah. Bang. bang. Yeah. Right. Okay. But I say that sometimes. You know, so if you think of modern presidents since FDR, right? Um, and there's no one set way to organize the executive branch. I mean, some of it is already written into law. Right. So you have cabinet departments. Okay. You have agencies within those departments. You have independent regulatory commissions. Um, you have, you know, government corporations like the United States Postal Service, uh, which, you know, me and I are huge fans of and we've talked about at length in the podcast. Yeah. Right? I'm hoping that at some point I'm the head of that agency. Oh, hey. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be General Rogers to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Postmaster General Rogers. It's the right? only way I'm ever going to be a general. So, you know, but what we're anyway. but, but what we're talking about here is a president's ability to be a team builder, right? Um, it's hard. It, it, it's extremely difficult, right? Because for many of these people who run for office, okay, they have been okay. Um, the person, right? Who makes okay. decisions, right? If you're the senator in your office, what you say goes. Goes, right? There's no 
subcommittee that talks about what yeah. I mean you have you probably have a chief of staff and you probably have some clerks and they prepare things for you but brass tacks all the decisions come down to you because the scale is so much smaller so now you're taking that scale and you're making it times a cause billion and that's yeah. a technical term yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> technical language alert that's right, right cause a billion right. um so how do you even are there i assume there have been people who have been good at it and people who have not been so good at it yeah i mean in some of this is what is the preference of the president in regards to how they want information to get to them i mean because if nothing else presidents have access to another technical term okay a whole bunch of information that other people in the government never receive, the press is not aware of, and the public's never aware of. Oh, nice not use of the S word there, which is yeah. what you were going to say. Yes, right. Way to be self-censoring. Well, you know, a whole bunch of information, right? Yes. <laughs> more, more information than any of us could probably ever imagine. Right? Loads and loads of it. Yes, right? <laughs> Think about those times in your life, listeners, to where you had sensory overload, and then multiply that probably by a thousand or a million. Well, in part because every single person who has a concern in the government thinks that the president should care about that concern. Yes. Right? Like every, every single agency has a pressing concern because there's a point for them to be an agency yes. and so you know that they're going to want to try to get time with the president i'm assuming that the most important person in the president's life is the person who keeps their calendar yes well actually because getting too. time yeah yeah, yeah. with yeah. the president would be i mean because you know yeah there's basically two the chief of staff who's the primary gatekeeper okay um and the uh president's scheduler and basically the scheduler reports to the chief of staff ah. so i mean the chief of staff so you have to go through the chief of staff and say i want to talk to the president about uh wind farms off of north carolina and the president says to the scheduler put that six months from now on a tuesday at 4 yeah. p.m and we'll cancel and then they move on yeah the chief and this is the thing, the chief of staff is not one of those positions that most Americans uh, uh, are aware. Oh, most of the time you can't name the chief of staff. No, right? Although in this presidency, you have been able to. Well, yeah. a few times. Yeah, a few times. But I mean, think about it. Probably more Americans, Nia, knew who, know who the chief of staff was for the fictitious Bartlett administration <laughs> on the left wing than they do for most presidents we've had, okay, in our country's history, right? Well, that's because Leo McGarry was awesome. Oh, yeah, right? I'm just saying. Yeah, we, we should probably go ahead and do a, a future podcast episode uh, about the uh, political uh, lessons that can be gleaned from watching the old episodes of The West Wing, okay? <laughs> funny, what they got right, what they got wrong. They got a lot right. Oh, yeah, so they, they, Yes, but I mean, so when you're talking about organizational capacity, it's okay. How do they how do they construct their team? What responsibilities they give to their team? Okay, um, how much do they rely on their team before they make decisions? 
right? So, oh, I have this fabulous team, but I don't listen to a word they say. I just decide when I wake up in the morning what I'm going to do with Iraq. Yeah, I mean, think, which would be a terrible idea. There's no point in having a team if you do that. Yeah, I mean, Greenstein, you know, has a fascinating, if you will, uh, section uh, where he compares LBJ um, uh, uh, to uh, Reagan, right? Okay. LBJ was uh, noted for not relying upon the team he put in official positions. He frequently turned to trusted advisors that he had worked with for years when he was in the Senate. And before that, the House of Representatives. Wasn't Jimmy Carter also like that? Oh, yeah. Well, and in part, yeah. Jimmy Carter, okay, was in many ways the classic Washington, D.C. outsider. Because before he, he was elected president, he was governor of Georgia. He had not served in the House or the Senate, had no meaningful federal government experience. Um, and a part of what Carter ran on for president was, I'm an outsider and I'm going to come to Washington, D.C., and I'm going to go ahead and clean up D.C. <laughs> Empty right? the swamp. Yes. That's what they all say they're going to do. Empty yeah, the swamp. Yes, right? None you of know, them say, I'm part of the swamp, and I like it. Yes, and I think the swamp is good because there's some really good stuff that goes on in the swamp. Nobody yeah, they, says that. No. Right? Even you if know, it's true, nobody says that. You know, Barack Obama said he was going to come, you know, he if he was elected president, he was going to change the culture. Oh, right? and Donald Trump was going to drain the swamp, the swamp, and Carter was going to drain the swamp. and Okay, Bush 43, okay, a kinder, gentler conservatism that would change Okay, Washington, D.C. <laughs> okay. How'd that work out? Yeah, how'd yeah. that work out for you, right? So, you know, LBJ, okay, frequently bypassed his attorney general, his secretary of state, his uh, uh, secretary of defense, the national security advisor, okay? Um, and then turned to people he knew for years um, who oftentimes... Okay, fixed things for LBJ when he was in the legislative branch. So, you know, he would frequently turn to Abe Fortas, who unfortunately happened to be a Supreme Court justice at the time, okay, for advice and counsel, right? Wholly inappropriate. And it also sent a very clear message to the quote unquote team that he did pull together that. He wasn't interested in what they had to say. Reagan, on the other hand, basically went to put together a team and, according to critics, deferred too much to them, right? So, you know, Reagan, for instance, had Donald Reagan, um, Ed Meese, uh, and Jim Baker, and basically told the three of them, okay, you guys run the government on a daily basis. I will make big decisions. I'll handle the vision thing, okay? But you guys run the government. Well, he didn't want to be bothered with the small stuff. No, okay? And there is a certain something to be said for that. Like, I mean, I, I would think the best thing would be a balance. But if you yes. weren't going to be balanced, then putting in a good team 
and letting them do their thing would be preferential to I put in a good team and then I completely ignore them. Yes. Yes. I would think. Yeah. So the best choice is a combination, but the, but the next best choice is what Reagan did is, is putting in a, I mean, because wh whatever you might say about those men, they were undeniably intelligent and knowledgeable. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I, okay. Okay. But the other, the other thing though, is um, I, I would think that you also have to avoid the urge to, to put people around you who tell you how fabulous you are. Like if you're yeah. forming groups of people and the only people in these groups of people agree with you and tell you you're awesome, that's the way yeah. we get dictatorships, right? Like that's the way we get and bad one, leadership. And that's one of the criticisms of the Trump, Trump administration is um, he so quickly reconfigures his team because it appears as though Trump wants yes people. He wants yes people, okay? And Which he's used to having in business. That's right, okay? Um, but in government, most scholars, most who have worked in presidential, if you will, um, uh, teams have said, there is an innate value, a very essential value in individuals being encouraged to say to the president, no, Mr. President, or no, Madam President, you can't, you should not do that. You should not do that. What is, wasn't it with Lincoln, it was called team of rivals? Yeah. Um, Doris right. Kern, yeah, Doris Kearns Goodwin uh, wrote, I believe, a Pulitzer winning book. And it's a really good book. I've, uh, I've read it. Uh, Lincoln, when he was elected president, basically chose as his cabinet, pretty much everybody who ran against him for the Republican Party primary. <laughs> okay, so what he was trying to do was get a diversity of opinion. Let's. It, well, and, and, and politically, it was also very wise for Lincoln because by make, putting them in his cabinet, it gave them fewer opportunities uh, to be outside his cabinet and criticize him. Right, okay. I mean, because there is the behavioral norm historically that if you're in a president's cabinet, it's really bad form to go ahead and criticize the president who is your boss. And I'm going to just say it is super bad form for the president to undermine yes. their appointees by saying bad things about them as well. Yes. And that's not just President Trump, but other presidents have done that too. And that's also poor form. Like if you, if you have a personnel issue, you take that up privately. Yes. You don't, you yes. don't announce that publicly. If if your department chair had a problem with you individually, that's not something he should bring up at a department meeting where he calls you out in front of your colleagues because it undermines your position with your colleagues as well as your position in just in general. It's just it's just rude. Well, and it also sends a bad message to the rest of your colleagues. Yeah, pipe down or you're gonna or you're next. Yeah. Which is also Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean again. Unless you prefer a dictatorship, that's usually not the kind of best uh, the, the the best kind of motivational ploy <laughs> for your staff. Okay. Oh boy, I better I better shut up because I might go ahead and get undressed uh, publicly just like Augie did. 
right yeah that that's not good form that's not good form okay it it does terrible things to morale right it, it does terrible things to morale do we have an example of a really good organizer in chief um well i mean pretty much by all accounts eisenhower which maybe shouldn't be that much of a shock wait he, general eisenhower who yeah, ran the yeah, allied invasion of yeah of, of normandy. normandy yeah right you think he could organize stuff maybe yeah. <laughs> How many countries were involved in that? How many ships? How many men? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 and what was really funny was uh, before Eisenhower became president, uh, uh, the outgoing president, Harry Truman, remarked publicly that poor Ike, he's going to issue orders and the orders will not be followed by the bureaucracy. Well, interestingly enough, Eisenhower became president um, and he didn't mind his team or the bureaucracy occasionally saying no. He basically understood that he could not manage, micromanage every detail of the federal government. Uh, and he learned that in the military. You have to trust, okay, you know, by and large, that there are good people, um, that they sometimes will make bad decisions, but you can't micromanage them. The federal government is just too big. It's just too big. So Eisenhower gets kudos. Um, uh, let me see. Um, oh, Bush 41. You and I have talked about this in previous podcast episodes. I think historians and presidential scholars um, are going to, um, uh, 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 if you will, identify a lot of positives that came from the Bush 41 administration um, because there are uh, uh, scholars um, are pretty impressed with how he ran the executive branch. Um, and again, probably not that big of a surprise. What, organizing the CIA? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a guy who was involved in both the legislative and executive branch for pretty much his entire career, right? This is a guy who understood um, uh, because of experience, um, but he was probably more of a thinker than a lot of people actually gave him credit for because let's face it, in terms of communication skills, Bush 41 wasn't all that good at communicating to the public, <laughs> okay? No, he was kind of awful to listen to. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, by almost all accounts, in person, in small groups, the guy was golden, right? He was so nice, such a good listener, um, but could be, you know, very decisive when the need called, need, uh, need arose. Uh, but uh, scholars give uh, Bush 41 uh, uh, kudos for how he organized, um, if you will. His team, yeah. Did, did is there some sort of um, okay? No, let me back up. So, if I were president, no, when I'm president, <clears throat> think positively, um, and I put together my team of rivals, right? Part of what happens in those or in those in those organizational conversations is that you get some 
back and forth and some real right and i would assume that some presidents are super uncomfortable in that situation and some presidents live for it you know what i mean like like i'm picturing barack obama thinking well now nobody needs to raise their voices you know what i mean like we don't need to be unpleasant here he just seems like a person who would be uncomfortable with people sort of being shouty and frustrated and and other stuff like that whereas i and i i obviously have not been in any meetings with president trump uh, yet but um i i think he probably would be sort of excited by the sort of volatile exchanges is that part of it as well that there's am i reading that completely wrong or is that no 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 no. you're not reading that wrong at all um and and in part nia your question gets at um there's no one best way to organize the executive branch of the federal government i mean some of it does depend on uh the president's personality um, how they like to receive information. Um, so this gets at, if you will, um, intelligence, you know, because part of intelligence is how do you process information and then what conclusions you draw from that information. Some presidents, you are correct, um, uh, definitely enjoy uh, a robust give and take, okay, a robust give and take. So for instance, um, it is well chronicled that the Clinton administration enjoyed, Bill Clinton enjoyed countless, if not endless hours of debate over policy. That's not surprising. He likes to talk. Yes, right. So and, he, it would not be surprising to me that he would want to talk it out and talk it all the way through in his brain. And, 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 and have it, people push back and say, yeah, but it, what about, and what about, and... And the guy loved policy details. In, in fact, some would argue probably too much because it oftentimes took him too long to make decisions. I mean, that's one of the criticisms of the Clinton administration was that it took them too long to make decisions, right? But he liked that. He liked that kind of, right? Bush 43, by all accounts, basically wanted two or three choices to be presented to him. So if there was going to be debate, it was going to be debate before it got to him, right? And he had such trust in his vice president, Dick Cheney, to manage that debate that a lot of that debate, okay, was, you know, never got to him. <laughs> right? Okay. I mean, and let's, I mean, let's face it. Okay, I don't know about you, but I'm not entirely sure that uh, uh, if Dick Cheney said to me, we're done, I'm pretty much, even me with my, you know, lifelong issues with authority. If Dick Cheney said to me, Augie, we're done, then we're done. Yeah. Right. You'd say, right. yes, sir. And you'd get up and take your cup of coffee and go somewhere else. Cause well, that's right. Cause okay. that's what he means when he says we're done. done. Right. Cause the next thing is, is he's going to yeah. shoot you. So yeah, yeah. like he does his other friends when, you know, when he's done. 
Oh, stop. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but I mean, I, I suspect in seriousness, and I, I, all joking aside with uh, Vice President Cheney, uh, also probably, he probably has a pretty good sense of when the debate is done and now people are just going back over points they've already made. And he doesn't seem like a man who would have patience with that. Yeah. Right? To make it, make it, the it, point. Yeah, yeah. I heard you. I don't agree. And we're moving on. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. that seems to be a, 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 and I don't think that's an illegitimate way to, to consider it. If, if you have to get through something in order to make a decision, right? Like if you right. can talk endlessly about it, that's different. But in the presidency, my, my supposition is that things don't come to your desk unless they need action. Yeah. I mean, like hardly know. ever is, does somebody just say, you know, Mr. President, I was thinking we could just shoot the bull about, some topic like that doesn't they don't have time for that what they're doing is making constant decisions so they need they need for the the discussion to be um distilled i'm sorry they need to have the conversation distilled right, right? Uh, it, it's it, it's much like uh, uh my uh, colleague uh, uh chris saladino who studies um um, uh, how um, craft breweries and distilleries have have developed in the United States. And he's explained to me at length how the distillation process works, right? Um, I mean, basically, you know, by the time the information gets to the president, okay, um, clear choices need to be made, okay? All the information that may have been accumulated by a half a dozen agencies, okay, with two or three cabinet secretaries in consultation with leadership of both the House and the Senate and the Congress. And a bunch of lawyers. And a bunch of lawyers in the White House Legal Counsel's office. The president doesn't need to read all of that stuff. Right. Right. What the president needs to read is, okay, Mr. President, Madam President, we have this situation. Here are the three choices. Here are the pros and cons. And your staff is recommending this choice. And here's the reason why. And you basically got 20 minutes on the president's calendar to go ahead and make that case in the Oval Office. In case anybody was wondering, that's a presidential memo. Yes. And <laughs> so for all of you, uh, any of you who are, who are exactly who are wondering why professors make you write them. That's you write the them because in the real world, that is legit how that communication happens with most presidents. Yes. I Here is told. a very brief paper. Yes. Right. I'm not going to give you more than three pages to read, Mr. President, because you don't have time. Yep. And I'm getting at the heart of the issue. I'm covering everything that needs to be covered. And then I'm going to give you the three choices and why and yep. why we've chosen B. Yes. You know? But I'm also going to give you room to wiggle if there's another choice that's not terribly off the one that I've made and also would result in a similar. Yeah. Thing. And once you've submitted that memo, if there's going to be a meeting in the Oval Office with the president, you're not going to rehash what you wrote in the memo. Right. 
you're there to answer follow-up questions from the president. And if you start rehashing what the president's already read, uh, you're going you're gonna to get cut off by either the chief of staff or the vice president. I'm going to let mean, our listeners know on a secret, there's a little button the president can push and you fall through the floor. No. <laughs> and that's what's going to happen. Oh, no, 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 but, no. But you... But yes. you would you would find yourself not doing that. And yes. the other thing is that people who present those memos to the president are often professional intelligence officials from various agencies. Like the people who come in and give the intelligence briefing in the morning, they are trained to do that very thing, to be very brief, to be very focused, to get, okay, today we're talking about I, I don't know, pick a pick a subject, the Suez Canal. And so we're only going to talk about that and what the current problem is and what we think the solution is and what we think the president needs to know today about that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of sort of like um, um, the various countries in the last month that have entered into um, uh, um, agreements with uh, Israel in the Middle East. Um, you know, there's been what three or four countries um, that have reopened, if you will, diplomatic ties to Israel in the past month. Uh, I know it's very exciting. We're living in exciting, exciting times. Okay, very exciting. Uh, by all accounts, uh, the Trump administration has helped negotiate and broker, you know, those arrangements. Now, if anybody thinks that they just all of a sudden happened um, in August and September of this year. That's not how the federal government works. At some point in time, somebody in the State Department, the National Security Office, and probably also the intelligence agency said, hey, Mr. President, we think here's an opportunity. We need to be ready for it. Here are the pros and cons. Um, does this bring us to the vision thing? Yes. Because yes, that seems like a vision thing, right? Like some yes. presidents really care about peace in the Middle East and trying to, you know, trying to build that. I mean, all the presidents say they care, but more, pre but some presidents work on it harder than others. Like there seems to be by vision thing, is that sort of what the president hopes to accomplish in the larger sense of their presidency? Yeah, so basically Greenstein and other presidential scholars lump modern presidents into two, if you will, broad, rough categories. Okay, one, presidents who have vision, as you just mentioned, Mia, um, have a kind of sort of long-term, if you will, strategy of what they want to do with the office, but also what they want to see for the United States or the U.S. Uh, place in the world, right? So to give the classic examples, Kennedy, right? You know, you and I've talked about before, Kennedy gives an inauguration speech where he says, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, rather, you know. What you can do for your, do country. For your country, right? Now, you know, Plenty of Americans have been trying to figure out, well, what did he actually mean by that? But in part, what he was suggesting, okay, was that the United States 
okay, was going to be doing different things, and he thought the U.S. could be doing different things in the next decade, because he was elected in 1960, right? So he started talking rather explicitly about how the United States needed to maintain an active presence internationally. Now, that would run counter to our country's history to where when we have gotten out of being isolationist, we would get involved in a war and then we would retreat to the Northern Hemisphere. And Kennedy was cautioning, we can't do that anymore. Right? So he had so a vision. He had a vision for the U.S. and the world. But then he started talking about, well, the country needs you, the public, to also be involved, right? Okay. So, you know, he... Well, under him, we get the um, Peace Corps, right? We get... NASA. We get yeah. NASA. We get sort of sort of these big world things we're doing these yes uh, almost uh, i know that the word was not around yet but almost a globalization-y yeah yep vision of the world that the world is small now ish because we yeah. can all well and thinking about it at that point plane travel is starting to be relatively common people are the world is smaller in the sense that people can go and connect with people in other countries relatively easily, which they could not do before. Um, and, and so I could see where that would make the world a, we can't just retreat back and say, oh no, we're not going to play with others. And the value of a president that has a vision is that it's a consistent message. Okay. It's a consistent message to the public. It's a consistent message to uh, the Congress, it's a consistent message to the rest of the world. Now that's great, unless, okay, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and you need a president who quickly goes ahead and pivots to whatever crisis or crises are going on, right? Right. You know, so, you know, many people, again, criticize Bush 41, okay, for lacking a vision. On the other hand, some presidential scholars and historians are now saying he was probably the best president for the country to have when the Cold War ended because he was a pragmatist. Okay, he was a pragmatist. Yeah, right? he'd worked with those people spy-wise for years. Like he... Yes, right? He could read the room. Yeah, okay. Um uh, he was oftentimes Reagan's emissary to the rest of the world during the Reagan administration, right? Um, so in some ways, lack of a vision is not necessarily a bad thing, depending on when you are president, right? When you okay. are president. That okay. makes sense, because yeah. Kennedy, Kennedy's vision, right? Ich bin ein Berliner. I am, I am a Berliner. We're all one yes one world was at the beginning of the cold war when the world was being divided up by the united states and and the soviet union and and he was trying to claim well, yeah and he was trying to also reassure people in europe that the united states 
was not going to, you know, fall back and do what it previously did. Right. And, um, bail. and become isolationist. Right. That yeah. we're here and we're part of you and you're part of us and we're part yeah. of the quote okay. free world, as it were. But, um, you know, a pragmatist like, you know, Bush 41 actually made it pretty easy or not pretty easy, easier for a Soviet leader like Gorbachev to actually dismantle the Soviet Union. Because he didn't rub it in Gorbachev's face that you guys lost the Cold War and we won. Yeah, he wasn't being grandiose. Yeah, Bush 41 was, not a, was like, how can we help you become democratic? Right. You know? Well, because it helps us. Like, yeah, it, sure. you're right. Practical. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly I mean, practical. I mean, it helps hey, us for you to not fall apart, because if you fall apart, then Eastern Europe is is going to struggle. I mean, and, the Persian Gulf War is another good example of it. Did Bush 41... You know, when he ran for president, did he hope there was going to be a Persian Gulf War? Hell no, right? Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, yes, I understand, you know, the critics of that war, that it was all about oil. But Bush 41 sent a very clear message to the rest of the world, okay? And the rest of the world, not for nothing, also need, or at that point, needed oil coming out of the Middle East. We're not going to let the Iraqis, okay, um, uh, uh, put into question our oil supply. We're still a leader here, okay? Right. Cold War may have ended, okay? But the giants have not gone to sleep. Yes, right? Um, which, which, the, which Russia was going to sleep in some ways, in the sense of... Oh, hey, Russia was... was its, its power in the world was falling apart. Part, and yeah, we needed... Right? We needed at least one power to be saying, okay, but there's still a cop on the beat. There's still. Yeah. yeah right. And, and I know people don't like us to be the world's policemen. And I'm, uh, I'm sympathetic to that argument, except somebody has to be the voice that says, we can't allow this. Yeah. We can't, you know, For one of Clinton's great regrets is that he didn't step in with Rwanda. Which sure. we should have. We yeah. should have because it was our responsibility to do that. International, international governing organizations, which are the hallmark of uh, IR theory known as liberalism. International governing organizations don't work unless the member nations, particularly the most powerful member nations, are willing to enforce the rules of those international governing organizations. Right. That's the value of Bush 41. So, you know, and I think he's fairly criticized for lack of quote unquote vision, okay? <laughs> that vision thing. On the other hand, um, as a transition from Reagan to Clinton, where the focus was on domestic policy in the Clinton administration, Bush 41 laid the groundwork, yeah. right? I mean, in, 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 in since he was president, Bill Clinton has thrown a lot of kudos, okay, Bush 41's way, okay? Yeah, uh, once he beat him in the election, he was like, yeah, that guy's pretty good. <laughs> well, and then later in life, they've become friends, and I think they've probably connected intellectually, well. Well, they I did, they it was before, were... yeah, before uh, 41 died, yeah. They, right. Yeah, they become really good friends. And, and by the way, it's not like these two were 
a lot alike. I mean, you're talking about from two different generations. Oh, right? and two wildly different styles. And yeah, you know that there was stuff that President Bush disapproved of. Yes. On and, a personal level, but. And you know that Clinton had to go ahead and hate, you know, uh, not hate, but probably wasn't all that keen on Bush 41's, you know, societal elite status that he had from, you know, the day he was born. Right. Whereas, you know, Bill Clinton was raised by a single mo mother in Hope, Arkansas. Okay. Right. Right. What well, you know, the man from Hope wasn't that the man the, from uh, Hope? That's right. Yeah, or the, the, the boy from the boy from Hope. Yep. Yeah, the boy from Hope. Yes. Yeah. Well, the other thing too is I'm not sure. Like, I'm just going to throw out here that it's all great and well to have a vision, but if you can't articulate it, then it's like you don't have one. So yes. I would argue that part of vision is also public communication, is the ability to to communicate with the with the rest of, of 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 the american populace about what it is that you want to try to to accomplish nia public communication um is a rather significant skill for any president but particularly modern presidents we're going to spend a lot of time i i believe talking about that so will we pause this podcast episode, okay, and start our next one with uh, effectiveness as a public communicator? Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. So we've covered then um, how they organize and how they take in information. Yes. Which is not necessarily the same thing, but we've talked about both of those. And, and we've talked about vision their vision and and what and having a vision and not having a vision and sometimes how those things can be useful yeah right? depending on when it's happening and who it's happening to um so yeah. presidents in their time yeah i mean because you know many of us right or wrong and and we've discussed this before you know, should the president be the most dominant actor in the U.S. federal government? Well, you know, okay, that ship has sailed. <laughs> right. Okay. So, but, you know, many Americans and many folks around the world, many nation states around the world, look for a president to have vision. On the other hand, certain circumstances, okay, uh, a president who has less vision, but is more of a, a doer, a pragmatist, if you will, uh, might be a better fit. So again, it's not to say that it, it, it's much like our conversation about organization. When a president organize, organizes the executive branch, it has to work for that person, right? Oh, that's true. If you inherit an organization and it, it's not your style, yeah, right? it won't work for you. Like you have it, it, to mold it in a way that gives you what you need in order to succeed. And it's, it's much like the cognitive style that we talked about in regards to how do they process information and the conclusions that they draw from it. You know, so we talked about organizational uh, skill, uh, cognitive style and vision, right? You know, with cognitive style, you know, and in, in, in we kind of sort of briefly touched upon it, you know, what you have here is how do you process information, right? You know, Jimmy Carter was great at at 
processing information like an engineer because he was an engineer okay before he became before he ran the family farm yeah wasn't he a nuclear engineer like yes yeah. yeah right okay like the scariest uh, kind of engineer no offense intended to our nuclear engineering listeners okay but at the same time he it didn't give him direction right whereas the big complaint about reagan was reagan never wanted to know the details but he could go ahead and take if you will information and feed it into a broader vision and make it work so a lot of this is what do you want a president to do, right? What do you want a president to do? Um, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who are like, you know, I like, I want presidents who are really, really smart. And of course, my response is, okay, but if they can't then draw conclusions and present it in a vision, and then to the next skill we're going to talk about uh, uh, to start off our new, next podcast episode, communicate that to the then public. it doesn't matter right yeah then the, the, what good is it right. right what good is it i mean because at some point in time again right or wrong we are at a place in american history where we want the president okay to have a vision and communicate it to the public and if they can't do that well what good what <laughs> What good is a whole bunch of smarts, right? right? You can have a great organization. You can have processed information within an inch of its existence. You can put it into your vision. But if you can't explain that to anybody, yes, bubkus, yeah, it amounts to nothing. Okay, yep. so we're so we're ready to talk then about um, communication styles next time. That's right. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you, Nia. This is fun. I'm excited. I'm excited to hear about that too, because I have thoughts about how people communicate politically. And I think we're going to, there's, I'm really interested to ask you about different styles. Okay. Yeah. Cause there's communication, but then there's also political skill. Yeah. And yeah. I, and those two things are, I think different, but they're also tied together in yeah, some yeah, way. They, yeah. Yeah. They intertwine. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cool. All right. We'll talk to you next time. All right. Bye. Nia. Bye. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.